Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. To those that are here in the church and to those who have joined us online, uh, I guess I should say something obligatory about the year 2020. I remember when seeing it come and in, I thought that there was going to be this deluge of uh, sermons and prophecy seminars with the catchphrase, hey, 2020, can you see the vision clearly? You know, playing on the idea of strong eyesight, 2020. Um, but it didn't turn out that way, did it? Um, for the first time in the history of the world, every nation was faced with a crisis, the same crisis. There have been world wars, but there always have been places in the world that the war did not touch. But as we have learned, viruses and disease no, do not recognize man-made boundaries and has impacted everyone. My hope is, and at least I know it has done for me and certainly my wife, is, is that it has caused us to reflect on what truly is important in life and to reflect upon our relationship with God. Whether you have one, is it healthy, and is it growing? And if you don't have one, maybe it's time that that ancient book that modern secular society likes to scoff at Maybe, just maybe, there is some truth in that. I believe we are in the last days. I don't think there's anybody here that doubts that. And as we enter into these last days, we need to remember that we, in our faith, are going to be attacked. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a pastor or a leader in the church, whether you are a simple member of the church or whatever role you have, none of us are exempt from it. We know we'll be challenged. Our strength, our courage, our faith will be challenged. We will have moments where we feel discouraged, distraught, distressed, or perhaps even fall into the depths of despair. We may even come into the point of our lives that we might, just might feel that God has left us, that he has abandoned us, that he has left us orphans. But we need to remember, we will not be the first to have these feelings. The patriarchs and prophets went through it. The apostles went through it. And even our Lord and Savior Jesus went through it. And that should give us and remind us and give us hope that God has not left us orphans. He has not abandoned us. He has not left us alone. And we are fortunate in this country because there are some countries that still do not have access to the Bible, but we have stories of those who have endured that can help us and encourage us in faith. Today, we are going to look at one of those such stories. I've entitled today's sermon, Faith of, of Nehemiah. And for my opening prayer, I think it's wonderful that the book of Nehemiah actually opens up with prayer. So before we dig into the word that the Lord has given us, the word of encouragement, bow your heads as I read Nehemiah's prayer and meditate it and make it your own. And Nehemiah said this, 
I beseech thee, Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine eye now be attentive and thine eyes be open, and may you hear the prayer of thy servant. Hear our prayer. Hear my prayer, Lord. Which I pray thee before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel thy servant, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt corruptly against thee, and have not kept thy commandments, nor thy statutes, nor judgments, nor the commandments of thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that I commandest thou servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad amongst the nations. But he doesn't leave us orphans. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you were cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather thee from thence and bring you unto the place that I have chosen to set up my name there. Now these are the servants and the people whom has redeemed by the great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant this day, grant all of us mercy wherever we are in the sight of this man, for I am the king's cupbearer. We did a few quarterlies back, went through Nehemiah and Ezra, and we saw what, how God was able to work through these two men of faith. And typically when we think of Nehemiah, we think of the man who restored the breach. The repairers of the breach is how he is almost always referred to. But it was his faith that got him through that. Too often we think of of this and we forget how it was that Nehemiah, who, who, when we look at Nehemiah, who was he? He did not come from some royal line. He did not come from some lineage of, of Aaron in the priesthood. He was not a Levitical priest. He was what we would refer to as a common man. But yet this man who was a common man was slave in a foreign land. But I want you to think about this. His character was such that the very king who he was slave to entrusted him to be his cupbearer. Now, we may sit back and think that, well, cupbearer, what's the big deal about that? Remember the time that he lived in. Kings often didn't last long. And one of the favorite ways to get rid of a king or a leader that you did not want was to poison them. And the easiest way to poison them was in their drink. And so the cupbearer's responsibility was to drink the wine to make sure, before it was given to the king, to make sure it was not laced with poison. For you see, the servant was expendable, but the king was not. This is the kind of faith and trust that Nehemiah garnered from his king. Think about that. 
we see during perhaps one of the darkest times in Israel's history that there were men such a faith whose character and integrity so shone that even their enemies brought them and rose them to the heights of leadership and trust in their own nation. What I'd like to bring to you today is how Nehemiah got through it all. And in it, there's a pattern that gets often overlooked. There's a pattern in the way Satan attacks each and every one of us. We will see as we go through these scriptures how Satan will target fundamentally every basic human aspect. He will attack us emotionally. He will attack us physically. He will attack us through our relationships. And this is where we would like to begin. There's actually six steps to Satan in how he approaches to try to discourage and to get us to lose faith in God. And so for our first scripture reading, Nehemiah 2, verses 1 and 2. And you can watch on the screen or if you want to pull out your iPhone or whatever, read along with me. I'm going to be reading from the New King James. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, and I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before, and therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are obviously not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of the heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Notice the relationship between Artaxerxes the king and his servant. That he was able to tell the disposition of Nehemiah, that he was so close to him that not only could he, he could see that it was not simply he was, he was down, he was depressed, something was bothering him, but he realized and recognized that this was not caused by physical illness. It was an illness of the heart. Satan's most effective method in causing God's people to stumble is planting a seed of doubt. Remember the situation for Nehemiah. They, had been, they are supposed to be God's chosen people, and yet they are in captivity. And, and despite the captivity, God had promised that they would be restored, that they would go back to Jerusalem and rebuild again the temple and the city. But things were not going as planned, or so it appeared to Nehemiah. It seemed like the promises that God had given were not coming fruitful. He was hearing that there was nothing going on, that the work of the temple, the work of the walls, and rebuilding the city was not happening as God promised. And this troubled him. This is what Satan does. Can we trust the promises of God? God promised that this would be restored, and yet it does not seem to be happening. This is perhaps Satan's, one of most, Satan's most effective ways. He did it with Eve, casting doubt. Did God say, really? Did he really say, you shall die if you eat from the tree? He did it with Abraham, the man we call the man of faith, the father of faith. Did God really say that you'll have a child from your own loins? He even tried it with Christ himself, did he not? If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. 
How did Nehemiah respond? What lesson can we learn from him? Well, I just read the prayer, the opening prayer. This is what Nehemiah did. He prayed and he turned to the only person who can truly solve any problem we have, to God himself. So he first sought the counsel of God. But he was not, didn't stop there. He was not afraid to share his burden with trusted friends. Imagine a slave trusting his king that ruled over him. He used trusting relationships. Proverbs tells us, where there is no counsel, the people fail, but in a multitude of counselors there is safety. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. And the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteousness. Satan's first way to attack our faith is through grief, fear, and planting the seed of doubt. If that doesn't get us, he then ups the ante, so to speak. Nehemiah 2, verse 19. But when Shambhalai, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they did what? They laughed at us and despised us. Laughter and scorn. How many times have we been around other people, non-believers, and they may have mocked Christians? Or maybe you're around people who are slight believers and they joke and, and make maybe an off-color joke and we kind of shrink from our faith because we don't want to stand out like a sore thumb. Laughter and scorn. Remember, it got Peter. But Nehemiah responds in a powerful way. He relies on God's protection, and as you read the story, he will actually proclaim the sovereignty of God. He reminds us to remind our enemies that the Lord is in control. And as Christians today, when everybody is running around and being told that we need to put our faith in science or that we need to put our faith in leaders who serve only themselves, we are reminded that no matter what it looks to them, the Lord is still in control. So fear and doubt didn't get him. If scorn and laughter doesn't get us, Satan then wraps up the notch once more. Let's try something else. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. But it so happened when Shambhalai heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. Now keep in mind that Nehemiah, when he had poured out his heart to Artaxerxes and shared with him what his burden was, Artaxerxes issued a decree for Jerusalem and the walls to be rebuilt, gave him the materials in order that even the materials needed to rebuild would be given. And so Nehemiah, a cupbearer, 
a slave is entrusted with going back and starting the rebuilding effort. A layman. Do you not understand that it does not take someone who is trained and gone off to theology school or, or gone to the right schools or has the right pedigree, you've been in a church, the fifth generation or whatever. All you need is faith, a genuine faith, what is not simply lip service, but given in action and trusting God. And so as he is encouraging the people to rebuild the wall and, they, and the enemies of God see this, they come and they mock him. Wrath, indignation, mocking. How many turn away because of that? Jesus gave a parable dealing with that, did he not? The sower of the seeds. Or the one seed that falls on the rock. That when trials come, they wither away because they are not grounded. Nehemiah reminds us that when wrath, indignation, and mocking comes our way, God has set up watchmen to remind us and to warn us about the approach of our enemies. And he reminds us what our enemies intend to do to us and what they do to us, they do to God. Have faith in him. If that does not discourage people, and turn people away from their faith, Satan ratchets it up one more notch. Nehemiah 4, 7 and 8. Now it happened when Sambalé, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Astrodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became excited and happy and joyful, and, and no, they became extremely angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nehemiah was faced with not just one enemy, but a multitude of enemies. It would have looked like the world was against him. That all of the enemies of God have conspired and joined together to stop the work of God. But as you read the story, you realize that this did not stop Nehemiah. In fact, when the threat of physical violence came and open opposition and force was, was going to be used, and remember, God's kingdom is a kingdom of love. His kingdom is based on free will, a giving of the heart, our response to him the same way a parent and a child should in a healthy relationship. The relationship between the man and the wife should be the way it was always intended. For God does not give us the spirit of power, excuse me, of fear, but of power, love, and joy. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit of love. See, Satan will always use the same basic tactics. Fear, force, and coercion always to promote his views because fear will generate a self of self-preservation 
will turn and, and, and cause us to turn away from God and try to rely on ourselves and feel abandoned. Satan knows this. But it did not dissuade Nehemiah. Because as you read the story, what did he tell the people to do? Have a trial in one hand and a spear in the other. Be prepared to fight. Now, we're not fighting a physical battle. We are fighting a spiritual battle. So what spear or what weapon are we holding? The only thing trustworthy in the Word is the Word of God, as it has been preserved for us. So when open opposition and force come, there's a reminder to sound the trumpet that God shall fight for us and to remind us that God is still in control. David learned this the hard way when he said this in Psalms, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by his own great strength. So what have we covered so far? Satan's first attack, fear and doubt. Get us the question, does God love us? The second, laughter and scorn. Oh, you Christians, you're all like, <laughs> When that doesn't work, wrath, indignation, and mocking. And if that doesn't work, let's threaten them. Let's use force. But now, I'm going to say something that may surprise people because if you've made it through all of those four, Satan isn't done. And I believe the real danger now begins. Remember Jesus said that in the days that we are now in, the signs and wonders would be such that even who? The very elect could be deceived if such a thing was possible. That's you, me, everyone who has surrendered to Christ. It is said in the 1970s ushered in the information age. Well, I will say that the last year ushered in the misinformation age. Coming from every direction. Even within the church regardless of denomination. And so what does Satan do next? Nehemiah 6, 1 through 4. Now it happened when Shambhalai, Tobiah, Geshem, and the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall. They were now successful in completing it and that there were no breaks left in it though at the time I had not yet hung the doors and the gates. The Sambalai and Geshem sent to me saying, What? Come, let us meet together. Among the villages in the plain of Ono. But notice what's going on in Nehemiah's mind. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent a messenger to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? And they sent this message to me, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. And I answered them 
each time in the same manner. Nehemiah refused to parley with his enemies. And I want to dwell on this particular item, this method of attack. Because if you haven't started to piece things together yet, if you have a basic knowledge of the Christian faith, you will know that the first four steps that we have gone through, the Christian world has experienced. Remember that John wrote in his letters that the spirit of Antichrist that you have heard coming has already come into the world. By the time you get into the third century, Christianity had been infected with Greek philosophy. The teaching of immortality of the soul came through the doctrines of Plato, but it didn't stop there. It was brought into the church by a converted Christian, a Greek named Tertullian. And he brought this idea of immortality of the soul and in it what I believe to be probably perhaps the number one reason most people reject God is his false teaching that if it's the soul is immortal, then the lost as well as the saved live for eternity. And if the lost live for eternity, but they're not with God, where are they? And hence, the blasphemy, and yes, I call it blasphemy because it blasphemes the character of God, the idea that the lost will burn in hell for eternity coming into the church. And as the church kept going steeper and steeper and steeper into apostasy, as the Apostle Paul prophesied, that there would be a degradation of apostasy, where did the violence come from? No longer was it from the Romans. No longer was it from the Jewish people who thought the Christian followers were blasphemers and now came from within the Christian church itself. If you don't bow to my authority, what did they do? They used fear, force, and coercion to get you to do, to bow to them. This is Satan's tactics, not God's tactics. And where are we now in this idea? Do you think it's just possible? Listen to this, and I'm going to read. No, it's not. I didn't give this in the scriptures. But Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Thessalonians something that for many years puzzled me. And see if it puzzled you, or if you're still puzzled about it. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Peace and safety. How many times are the last days ever described with those words, peace and safety? Nowhere else in Scripture is it described that way. It is always described as a great tribulation. Jesus himself said that the signs and wonders that would occur during this time, during this age, would be such that even the very elect could be deceived. So what is Paul thinking? Is Paul out of his mind? Peace and safety. But remember, 
there are patterns and stories that were preserved for us in the Old Testament that God later uses to say the details might not be exactly the same but when you step back and look at the outline the pattern is the same see Jeremiah in his day when he was preaching to the Jewish people and and to, to the kingdom of Judah and warning them of the coming attack of Babylon if they didn't turn this is what he happened to say Jeremiah 6 and I found my answer hopefully it's your answer too Jeremiah 6 14 they have healed the, the hurt of my people slightly saying peace peace when there is no peace when you read the context of this story Jeremiah was talking about who the religious and political leaders in Judah don't listen to this prophet he's a false prophet we have prophets of our own are telling us things are great. Egypt is going to come and save us. We don't have to worry about the Babylonians. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Let me share with you just a handful of things that are happening in our lifetime recently. On January 21st, 2014, an Anglican bishop named Tony Palmer, who was spearheading the ecumenical movement for non-Catholics to resolve issues between the Catholic Church, issues of faith between the Catholic Church and the rest of Christianity. And on this day, speaking to literally tens of thousands of Christian leaders pastors he declared Luther's protest is over the miracle of unity is now beginning and went so far as to say that the Roman Catholic Church is Joseph sent ahead to repair the breach is the protest over well, on October 31st, 2017, picked specifically to be the 500th anniversary when Luther nailed the thesis challenging doctrines of the church, the idea of purgatory and, and, and paying indulgences to free your people. Why couldn't God, why couldn't the Pope just simply leave people out of purgatory? And we know purgatory doesn't exist, but in his mind it still did. Why can't he leave them out of simply for compassion and love? Why does it have to be to pay money? This was the heart of Luther. And Luther rediscovered a truth that had been hidden for centuries. The just shall live by faith. Not by works, not by sacraments, not by useless rituals, not going to a man, but through Christ. We had direct access to the creator and the source of life, God himself. And so on the 500th anniversary, the Lutheran church, which bears Luther's name, signed a joint declaration of the doctrine of justification saying we're okay with the Roman church and their teachings but if you read and if you read this which I have you could be easily persuaded that somehow the teachings of Rome have changed but they haven't 
they still believe that grace can be purchased, even though the Bible clearly tells us grace is a gift. They still believe that you have to go through them to get this grace. And they still believe that in order to enter into heaven, you must have good works. You have to earn that grace. My wife, someone from Brazil, and, and, and recently one of her family, I think it was, sent her a video of a man, I can't remember, he was in his 90s if I remember correctly, um, and he has something like 18,000 followers, and he was out doing work. And people were asking him, he's trying to earn grace from God, and people asked him, what are you doing? Why? You're all this age. He says, I haven't earned my salvation yet. This is spiritual bondage. It's a gift to us. Rome has not changed in, princi- in principle. Its tactics have. Our current president, bowing to the whims of evangelicals, made a declaration on May 14th, 2018, specifically the 70th anniversary of when President Truman recognized Israel, issued a decree that would recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, breaking an unwritten rule that has lasted since the restoration of a physical Israel. Many believing that somehow Israel will be restored, but the Bible tells us who Israel is. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs to his promise. And then just this year, the Abraham Accords. On August 13th, 2020, the United States, Israel, and the United Arab Emirates entered into a pact uniting, trying to unite all three of the quote-unquote religions that come from the loins of Abraham, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, and bring them into one fold. When they say peace and safety, then the end shall come. And so now what is the last attack? If this idea that, and and understand that this idea of of not negotiating with your enemies is universal for all of us, even in our daily life. If you know someone is an enemy and will not change, you do not sit down and parlay with them. There is nothing to be gained by sitting down and negotiating with your enemy. Because in the end, who will be the one that compromises? It won't be your enemy. And so we come to the last, Nehemiah 6, 10 through 13. And after I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of whatever, who was the secret informer, and he said to me, let us meet together in the house of God. Think about that. Let's meet together in the house of God within the temple. And let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. But notice how he responds. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such that I would go into the temple to save my life? 
I will not go in. And then I perceived that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalay had hired him. And for this reason, he was hired that I should be afraid and act that way and sin so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. Betrayal of a friend. Someone who pretends to be your friend but in reality is working for the enemy. Because of Nehemiah's relationship with God, and it was a constant walk, wasn't always perfect, but he never let go of God. Nehemiah was warned ahead of time by the Holy Spirit that this man was not of God. Nehemiah reminds us to be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. We are called to love our enemy, but we are not called to trust them. So let's review what we've learned quickly. The first, fear and doubt. Opposition begins with an internal attack against our feelings and our emotions. Nehemiah reminds us to seek God in prayer. And after that, then to seek godly counsel from others like-minded, from trusted and true friends. The second is laughter and scorn. Opposition moves to an external verbal attack to discourage us. Nehemiah reminds us to remind our enemies that the Lord is in control. The third, wrath, indignation, and mocking. Opposition intensifies now. The verbal attack continues, but now there's the threat of violence. Nehemiah reminds us that God will set up watchmen to warn us about the approach of our enemies. The fourth, open force is actually used. Opposition now turns physical. He reminds us to sound the trumpet. For God himself will fight for us. And then I believe the real danger begins. The invitation to conference. To sit down with your enemies. Opposition changes to a false demonstration of goodwill. Nehemiah reminds us to refuse to parley with our enemies. And then finally, false friends. Opposition becomes personal. Relational danger from those whom we trust. Jesus himself warned us that in the end days, our own family could be our enemies. That means even someone in this church could be your enemy, not knowing. Pray. We were reminded to be wise as a servant, gentle as a dove, to love thy enemy, but to never trust them. And I'm going to end on this. It is said that we have a Savior who is not separated from our infirmities. Well, God knows from beginning to end and knows the consequences of sin. We have the faith that Jesus himself went through everything that could possibly come our way. And if we understand properly his temptations and the burden that was placed on him, was infinitely greater than you and I can ever conceive. Because it wasn't simply the salvation of man. It was the future of the entire universe was on him. Because remember that the rebellion began in heaven. 
And so if you haven't quite put some of the pieces together, Jesus' last 24 hours actually follow that exact same pattern that I just described to you that Nehemiah went through, but only his journey was in reverse. For you see, Judas betrayed Jesus, the betrayal of a trusted friend. He was then brought to trial and invited to speak with his enemies. Tell us, are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ? Are you the living God? To reason with his enemies, but he knew their hearts, a new matter, and so he remained silent. And when that didn't do it, they beat him, spit on him, whipped him, and nailed him to the cross using open force. And while he was on the cross, Jesus was mocked, ridiculed, scorned, and laughed at. The same way, four times when Nehemiah was on the wall, asked by his enemies to come down, there were four groups of people that mocked Jesus and tempted him to come down. The centurions, the thieves on the cross, the passerbyers, and religious leaders all said, if you are the Son of God, come down and show us. And finally, when Christ felt the entire burden of the entire sin of the world, past, present, future, rested upon him as the sin bearer, Jesus, who became a curse for us, he could feel the wrath of God being poured out upon him. The separation For all eternity, he has had a love relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit that can't be described. How do we feel when we are torn away from our loved ones that we've known just for a few short years and our love is imperfect? Our love is usually conditional on how, but this is unconditional, self-sacrificing love. Imagine what Jesus felt being ripped apart as all of that came down, the darkness came upon him. And he uttered those words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Christ wasn't forsaken. We aren't forsaken. So no matter what, 2020 was a horrible year. If we were not directly impacted, we were some of the few blessed but I doubt that there is anyone here even speaking and that are listening that have not had any themselves suffered, whether it economic loss or perhaps a loss of a loved one, whether to COVID or even to some of the worst, someone taking their own life and everything that happens in between. It is people like Nehemiah that we can look back to and know that we are not orphans. The one true God has not forsaken us and that his promises that he gave are still everlasting and are for you and I and everyone who will respond to his voice. Amen.